Good morning to all of you. It's good to be back in the U.S. and back amongst you in San Diego. Um, thank you for your prayers while I was ministering in India, Lord willing. Next week, during our prayer meeting, I'll give a, a brief update on how that trip went. Um, if you're on the email list, you received some tidbits and pictures, but uh, there'll be much more uh, to come. And so you can be praying that I would have time to prepare for that and also make it a point to be here if that is of interest to you. And Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we will start a new series. I hope to begin a series in the life of Joseph, and uh, so that'll be uh, that'll take us for several months, and so you'll be praying for that preparation as we look at those gospel lessons that are filled there, even from um, uh, Joseph's life. But today we do come back to our final installment on this theme of heaven as we rounded out 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, we saw the, the, the theme of heaven there, and um, we looked at Revelation 4 a couple of weeks back, and we're going to look at Revelation 5 today. And as we think about heaven, it's no secret that in this life, this life is filled with trials. We live in difficult days. There's war and turmoil all around the world. There's hunger. There's so many that hunger. There are so many destitute people that are living in, in such horrible, poverty-ridden areas. Um, even in our own lives and in our own living here in the prosperity of the U.S., uh, there's health afflictions. There's terminal illnesses of which... Pastor Steve prayed for a couple of those that are near and dear to us, and uh, no one is immune to these things. And these things, I believe, God sovereignly brings so that we would hunger and thirst after his righteousness all the more on the one hand, but also that we would long for that eternal rest, that Sabbath rest, that Hebrews 4 rest that is promised to us. In one of the churches that I, I preached in, um, preached in many different churches while I was there in India, um, one of the churches I, I preached uh, Revelation 4. And um, the, the people there, uh, so poverty-ridden and, and just have so little that Revelation 4 especially ministered to them, and I was able to see it in a little bit different light. And I hope that for us, and whatever we're going through today in our pilgrimage as we head to heaven and the celestial city, that this passage might minister to us and give us that greater eternal hope, longing to be with him. Furthermore, as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, we long to be delivered from this body of death, as, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7. So let's read Revelation 5 in its entirety, and then I'll pray and we'll jump in. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book and to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. And the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. 
And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes and the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth And on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful scene recorded In your holy word, we thank you for this scene of perfect order and the purity of worship that is due your most holy name, and especially directed to thy dear son who came, born of a virgin, blood on a cross as our substitute, the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. Lord, how we rejoice in these things. So help us this day, Lord, as your people We've come from various difficulties this week and trials. Lord, help us to lift up our eyes from the things of this earth, to look up as it were to you and to our future home, that we would do as the Apostle Paul tells us, to set our mind on things above where Christ is. And so, Lord, assist us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, let's dig into this wonderful passage, Revelation chapter 5. Very briefly, the context, as you know, the Apostle John, the last living apostle, probably in the late 90s, is exiled to an island called Patmos, where he is given this revelation. It's about 50 miles southwest of Ephesus. Ephesus was the port city, was the hub of the seven churches of Asia Minor that you see in Revelation 2 and 3. This island was about 50 miles to the southwest. And it is there that he is told, and it's in a command, to write down these things. The first vision, of course, Revelation chapter 1, the second half, that glorious picture of, of the risen, exalted Christ. And then, of course, we have something of the record to the seven churches, the message to the seven churches from Christ. We see that those seven churches are marked with difficulty and trouble. We see no health and wealth gospel whatsoever in Revelation 2 and 3. That is a modern phenomenon uh, that has come about that is heresy. 
But these are real local churches that represent the true church of Christ at any given age. And then Revelation 4 and 5, there's a stark contrast from all the the difficulty and the agony and the exhortations to overcome and to persevere and even martyrdom amongst those churches. There's a stark contrast. As we saw last time, there's a, he's in the Spirit in chapter 4 and verse 2, and he beholds these things. There's a door standing open in heaven, and he gets to peer in, as it were, to see these things and to record them for our benefits. Well, chapters 4 and 5 really go together. As I mentioned before, it's probably an unfortunate chapter break. Um, I can understand why they did the chapter break there, but nevertheless, it's, it's, uh, chapters 4 and 5 go together. Now, let me ask you, what do Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Alexander the Great, Stalin, Hitler, Napoleon, Nero, what do all of these men have in common? Well, they weren't very good men, <laughs> number one, right? But what was it? They tried to conquer the world. And another thing they have in common is that they all failed. Jesus Christ alone is the conquering lamb. He is the victorious one who has conquered all and who reigns over all. History in this world is not determined by chance or by the stars aligning a certain way or by military might or by any particular ruler, but by a holy sovereign God who rules all things from his throne. He is in control. We are to remain steadfast and trusting in him. And in this passage, we have the rich privilege to rise up, as it were, above the difficulty that whatever we're going through, many different different ones of us are going through different types of difficulties and trial, but to rise up and to get a glimpse into the orderly, beautiful scene of heaven. We saw back in chapter 4 and verse 3 that rainbow around the throne which points to his covenant faithfulness to his children. He loses none. All those for whom Christ has died, he loses none. He never will leave his children. So as we dig into this text, John's vision goes beyond more the general scene of heaven, which is what chapter 4 is. And here... In chapter 5, it's as though he zooms in on a few particulars. Rather than the the, the large scene that we saw in chapter 4, it's as though you've got, I don't know, Caleb has these big zoom lenses and professional photographers, right, where you can zoom in. I mean, the Super Bowl, right? A camera could be all the way across the other side of the stadium and zoom right in all the way into the helmet to see a player's facial expression. So that's kind of what happens here. There's zooming in or the Olympics, you know, the, all of these uh, different figure skaters and skiers and all of that, they zoom in. And that's what happens here. Our text zooms in first to the right hand of him who sits on the throne. What a strange place to zoom into, to the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Well, we know that's where the book is, and so that's why it is zoomed in there. And so we're going to look at this under three points, three simple points, three, three Ps, actually. We're going to see the problem that there's a sealed book and no one is found worthy. We're going to see the paradox, secondly, that the lion is indeed the lamb, and then we're going to see the praise that takes place as a result. So first, the problem, verses 1 to 4. 
No one initially is found worthy to take the scroll. The scroll is being held by the one on the throne, sealed with seven seals. It is helpful to consider what John may be thinking, and as a Jew, he knew the Old Testament well. And there's various texts that also allude to a similar type of thing. Daniel 12.4, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. The word here for scroll is biblion in the original. It just means book or better in the New Testament. A a scroll, a single scroll, not a codex, a series of books, but a scroll. And that's the idea. And it's got seven seals around it. There's great emphasis of the fact that it is indeed sealed. You see it in Isaiah 29, verse 11. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book. Now, one thing to notice right there in verse 1, the him who sat on the throne held the book written inside and on the back. So this scroll is a little bit different. The papyrus that they would normally use would typically be written on the inside, on one side. But this particular one is written on the front as well as the back. Now, that's kind of striking to me. Where else do we see something written on the front and the back? Those of you in the men's theology group know this. We just talked about this. It's the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, those two stones are written on the front and on the back. So those images that you see with five commandments or four commandments on the front of one and the other six on the other is really not how it was. It was written on both sides. Exodus 32.15 would be the proof text for that. And so the point here is that it's written completely in entirety. It it speaks to its utter completeness. Nothing can be added. There's no room to add anything. Nothing can be subtracted. It is altogether complete. Whatever this book is, it is complete. Exodus chapter 2, verse 9. Then I looked, and behold, the hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it, and he spread it out before me, and it was written on the front and the back, written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. We looked at Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10 last time. There's many parallels with the Old Testament. You need to know your Old Testament to understand the book of Revelation. Now, John certainly knew these Old Testament texts. He's drawing from it as he's trying to encapsulate what he's seeing in this vision and to put it into simple words. Now, the question is, what are the contents of this book? And there are several different theories out there. Maybe you have your own opinion of what is in this book. You know, there's, and it's interesting, even later in Revelation, you have the book that's opened and then the books that are opened. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's some confusion there as far as what all of that might be. But what is this particular book that is held in the right hand of him who sits on the throne? Some think it's the book of life. It's all the, the, the names of those who would be redeemed, those who are elect and, and have been redeemed. Um, dispensationalists believe it's the title deed to earth that finally he gets the earth back because the devil had it for several thousand years. Um, or like Ezekiel, it has to do with the, the, the secret decrees of God, especially including the judgments of God. There's some merit there because of the judgments that we see that follow. But most likely, 
This scroll symbolizes the plan for the whole universe, including his whole plan of redemption, including his justice and judgment being meted out from the cross to the consummation of the ages. In other words, all of the decrees of God, including the positive decrees of which the people of God benefit, and also the judgments that will come upon the world and upon the wicked. And the idea that at the front and back, it is altogether extensive and comprehensive. In fact, the book of Daniel and the, the seals in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel 12 and here in Revelation 5 have the emphasis of something that is concealed. It's something that we can't tap into to discover the secrets. It is concealed and completely sealed. So brethren... It also points that these seals point to the idea that the contents cannot be changed. They are foreordained and set forth by Almighty God and the, the covenant of redemption. And breaking the seals in reality is the execution of its contents. And so we see secondly in verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Notice the adjectives he's using here. Didn't just see any angel. It was a strong angel. He wasn't whispering. He didn't have a soft voice. He was a loud, booming voice like Aaron's uh, over here. Maybe loud, probably louder than Aaron's, but <laughs> it's, it's a strong angel with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? So the question goes out from the strong angel. It's almost as though you can picture it echoing through heaven. There's no one saying, oh, me, oh, me, oh, me, try me, right? You've got no record of that whatsoever. And in fact, what we have is a record of silence. Psalm 103, verse 20, Bless the Lord, you His angels, who are mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. So loudly, who is worthy? The strong angel gives his call uh, needed to reach the furthest limits of, of God's creation. This call is so loud, and the word that's used is to preach to herald, who is worthy? And it echoes out through all of creation. In chapter 10, the strong angel, angel appears again with a loud voice, and I'll leave that for you to look at later. So who is worthy to open the seal? Who is worthy to loose the seals? It's not simply who is strong enough here to break the seals, but who is morally worthy to come and to break the seals. That is the idea. In fact, we read in John 1, which we read for several reasons, but one is that John the Baptist says that he's not worthy to tie the sandals of Christ or to untie the sandals of Christ. So there's nothing but a stunning silence after the strong angel's cry. And so John, being in the Spirit, looking at this vision, recording for us what he hears and what he sees, finds himself broken and weeping. Look at verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book and to look into it. John weeps 
bitterly. It's the same grammar that's used for Peter after he denied his Lord three times and Jesus looked at him and gave him that look and he wept bitterly. This is not just a a single little tear coming out of one eye and down the cheek. This is a profuse weeping. No one was found. But this problem, as we know, is only temporary. The weeping is prompted because unless the scrolls are broken and, and the scroll is unrolled, that God's plan for the world and ultimately the consummation of all of the redeemed cannot take place. We see a similar thing. John is like Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, where he says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. So we've seen the problem. The problem set forth here, and it produces great weeping on John's part. But but secondly, let's consider the paradox, verses 5 to 7. Verses 5 to 7, the lion who is the lamb... And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and to break its seals. Now, it just says one of the elders. We know there's 24 elders. It's literally from out of the elders. This voice comes forth to him. And it's a command, stop weeping. He does not see the lion at this point, but he hears about it. And what does he hear about this lion? That the lion has overcome, that he is the Nike one. He is the overcomer. Much That's the same word that occurs to all seven churches, the promise at the end. He who overcomes shall have the white stone and so forth and so on. And so this lion, what we're told is that he has overcome. And when you think of a lion, you think of something that is fierce, something with great strength, something with determination. We must not miss the significance of the allusion to the lion, to the tribe of Judah. That's why we read Genesis 49. The lion of Judah is called a lion in the blessing of Jacob. And Jesus is the greatest to ever come from the tribe of Judah. Reading verses 9 and 10 again, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have grown up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, he who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So a definite allusion to the tribe of Judah. But then secondly, look at what it says, of the root of David. Clearly an allusion to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, that Messiah would come from the root of Jesse. And that's part of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16. And your house and your kingdom <coughs> excuse me, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus himself in the last chapter of this book, the last chapter of the Bible, near the very end, refers to himself like this in 22.16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And so as John turns between verses 5 and 6, we see here in verse 6, and I saw between the throne... 
with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb, a lamb. John sees something altogether different than a lion. He's told, behold, the lion has overcome. And as he turns and he looks and he gazes his direction to the throne, he doesn't see a lion. He sees something altogether different, a lamb. Then I saw, the NAS has between the throne, it's literally in the middle in the middle of, of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, there was the lamb. Now, the text said that, he, that, that there's a lion and he turns and he sees a lamb. That's the amazing paradox. The lion of the tribe of Judah is one of the same as the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. The paradox, the tears, that the lion has great strength, as we know, and courage, and, 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 and very strong, conquered the devil and the world, but a lamb is meek and gentle, tender, and a perfect sacrifice. The lamb will prove to be the military champion. As you would study the rest of this letter, references again and again to the lamb who comes victoriously, the lamb who dispenses judgments. And so he is the conquering lamb. The contrast is enhanced in the original. It's the, the word that's used for lamb is, <coughs> excuse me, is the word in John 21 when Jesus tells Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Ten my lambs, my little lambs. And it's a mystery that these are both one and the same person. Chapter 13 and verse 8 of this book, it says, all who dwell on the earth and worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who had been slain. He's the the lamb. He's the lamb that, that is standing as if slain, the text says. Now, this as if slain doesn't mean that, oh, well, it was just painted on marks or something like that. It's it's literally he really was slain. The New English translation has he appeared to have been killed. <clears throat> and we know that he will bear the marks of his suffering throughout all eternity. And so this slain land reminds us of two things. Isaiah 53, we know that passage, right? That he is a sheep that is led to the slaughter and yet was silent. But also that Old Testament Passover lamb again and again that was offered on the day of atonement to atone for the sins of the people. That lamb that was perfect, that had to be one year old with no blemish whatsoever. He is the Passover lamb. And that's what Paul says. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. And the word here that as if slain literally means to cut at the throat a lamb that would be cut at the throat, turned upside down, and every bit of blood drained out of it, brutally slain, as we know, the sufferings that he endured on the cross. So, brethren, we need to understand this this concept, and you young people need to grasp this truth, that man's salvation is not simple amnesty like like is happening to the dreamers right the daca thing it's not amnesty but there had to be an actual redemption there had to be an actual ransom there had to be a payment made 
God cannot wink at his justice and just say, okay, give them a pass, give them a pass. There had to be a payment, and the lamb gave of his own life. God does not extend his mercy at the compromise of his holy justice. Divine justice had to be satisfied. The ransom had to be paid in full. What a glorious thing it is to know, and that's why Wesley can In 305 in our hymnal, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. A bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hand. What a wonderful, wonderful hymn. And he encapsulates really this idea that there he stands, he bears the marks, and your names are etched, as it were, into his wounds. The Lamb, throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, as I say, you see him dispensing judgment, but also he protects the elect throughout this book. Chapter 6 and verse 16 would be one place. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. Chapter seven and verse 17 as well for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of water and life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so, this lamb, he's told it's a lion, he turns, he sees this lamb, a complete paradox, but yet we understand this, and this lamb is not lying there as if dead, it says as if slain, because he bears the marks, but he is standing, he's in a position of readiness, he is there, and it's in the perfect tense, so ongoing results, there he stands, readiness of action, He continues to exist as the slaughtered lamb throughout all eternity. And that is for our benefit. Theologically, brethren, these two verses, John is showing us the central theme of the entire New Testament. Victory through sacrifice. The disciples didn't get it, right? They didn't get it. They didn't understand. What? What do you mean that you're going to be cruelly treated and then nailed to a cross and give of your life and rise from the dead? You're bringing your kingdom now, aren't you, Messiah? They didn't get it. And so much of the world and those outside of Christ don't get it. They mock and they sneer at the idea of a Savior who would give of his life as a substitute Christ, the Son of God, the Lion, overcame by being slaughtered as a lamb. He is both priest as our great high priest, but he was also the slaughtered one on our behalf. A complete paradox where you see strength on the one hand, but the tender gentleness of a lamb on the other. Courage and strength on the one hand, but patience and gentleness. Victory and suffering, might and innocence. Each of these are kissed together in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this causes, as I said, many to stumble over the truth of the gospel. My unconverted friend, children here, do not harden your heart. This is the one who will be dispensing wrath. This is the one who you will stand before if you do not embrace him as Savior. So we must be careful 
as we look at this. Look at what it says, the rest of verse 6. Having seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Now, Revelation in many ways could be, you know, you give your toddler a picture book. That's the way Revelation is. There's pictures. We don't want to get too carried away with all the details. But the seven horns and horns throughout the Bible are a a significance. uh, The significance is that it points to strength and might and courage. The seven eyes, of course, point to omniscience, that nothing goes on outside of, 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 of it being known. It speaks of a vigorous vitality in Zechariah chapter 3. And then the seven spirits of God, the completeness or the fullness of the Spirit of God. Verse 7, and he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Why does he come? Why does he take the book? Because he is worthy. He's the only one. It was found in the distance of the strong angel's voice that was worthy. So we've seen the problem, the sealed scroll, the paradox, that the lion and the lamb was the one who was found worthy, and now the praise that results. A burst of praise comes from heaven, as it were, because the lamb was found worthy. And you might think of this heavenly scene, as I mentioned last time, as circular as it says all around the throne, that the throne would be the very center, like a bullseye, and then these concentric circles going out further and further. And that's a helpful way, I think, to think of what this might look like. The host of heaven respond, and they fall down to worship the Lamb because of His infinite worth. Worship, worth-ship, because He's worthy to be worshiped. And we see here finally, there's an instrument now. We've seen two songs in chapter four directed more towards the Father in general, God in general. But now these next two are directed to the Lamb in particular. And this is the first one, this third song, of which there's an instrument. Let's read it. Verse eight. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. These golden bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. Look over in chapter 6 and verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, And they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they have been, would be completed. Prayers such as these being lifted up by the martyrs of the church to wait a little bit longer. But these golden bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints being lifted up. Perhaps some of these prayers are, Thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A recognition of the orderliness of what takes place in heaven. 
The participants praise and glorify the one on the throne, and it gets larger with each each doxology. We're told in in verse 9 that they sang a new song. That's an Old Testament expression you see again and again in the Psalms, that expression of praise to God for his victory over enemies. In this third, doxology is the only one that is called a song, and it's actually the longest one by word counts. And so the song The Lamb who is worthy. Why is He worthy? For three reasons. Because He was slain, because He purchased men for God, and because He made them a kingdom of priests as the results of His atoning work. His worthiness is based on His work of redemption. His sacrificial death was the means of purchasing men for God because we know He gave His life as a ransom. We were bought with a price. The deity of Christ is absolutely unmistakable here. How someone could read this entire Holy Bible and come away with the idea that Jesus Christ is not God, that he was a mere moral teacher is beyond me. It is clear, according to this praise that takes place in heaven, that he indeed is God. And so we see this beautiful picture here. Notice it's the four living creatures and the 24 elders, so it's 28. Remember, the first song was just the four living creatures in chapter 4. Then the 24 elders. Now they're united, the 28, but then it expands even more. Look with me in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of these was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb! that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Once again, John turns, he looks, and he hears the voice of many angels. So the circle, those participants in this song grows exponentially, doesn't it? Thousands and tens of thousands and tens of thousands around the throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb. You might think of a calm lake when you throw a stone into it and you see the circles. The smaller circles feed the larger circles. That's what's happening here as the anthem of praise is directed to the center, to the throne, and to the Lamb. We don't want to lose sight of this, uh, this glorious scene here. And the text moves from the second person to the third person as well. They say with a loud voice, there's a sevenfold tribute unto the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, and glory, and blessing. And so as though the fourth doxology is not enough, the myriads upon myriads of angels giving praise, we look now at the fifth in verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all Things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, dominion forever and ever. So the final and the fifth doxology is directed to the Father and to the Son, those who sit on the throne forever. It's like a crescendo now. Every created thing will join in this wonderful anthem. And then, of course, the response in verse 14, the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. 
The Lamb is worthy. The Father is worthy. Amen. Amen. The 24 elders fall down and worshiped. What a glorious scene. The problem, the paradox there, and then this praise that, that is almost unimaginable for us. It will be amazing when we get there in that day to experience such a wonderful thing. Well, in conclusion, a couple of points very quickly. We serve a majestic and holy God in this life. Let us not be cumbered with so many cares that, that we lose sight of our eternal destiny to be with Him. We've seen the Lamb of God, the one that is victorious, the one who stood in our place, those of us who are trusting Him. Do you today long for this place? Is it your hope to be with Jesus? Or are you so cumbered with the cares of this world that you barely give a thought to your eternal destiny? One of the things we can do is use the means of grace. That is to be in the Word, to be around God's people, to remind us that this world is not all, that there's so much more to this life than what we are living now. Are we feasting on the Word of God? Is this our food? Is to do the will of Him who sent me, as Christ said, and to consume and to meditate upon the Word of God? Public worship such as this is just a tiny foretaste of that glorious scene of what awaits each child of God. To participate in that anthem of praise should be something that we all long for, that we all desire. And if we are honest, many of us are so joined to the world, encumbered by the world, that we're so worldly-minded, we barely give a thought to these things. We can, we can then fall into the lies of this culture that this life is really all that matters. I prepare for my retirement, I'm planning out all of, you know, all of my days, and I'm expecting to live so long, and, and all of these different things. What folly! William Gurnall says this, nothing is more contrary to a heavenly hope than an earthly heart. George Swinock, another Puritan, heaven must be in you before you can be in heaven. So let me challenge you as I have so many times before, block out some time and meditate upon heaven. Go to the scriptures and read the rich passages such as this that we've just considered and meditate upon heaven and meditate upon being there. That is a means of perseverance in this life. That is a means of strengthening our faith and that we might be more faithful in the day in and day out of living our life. Is that not what happened to Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress? He comes near the end of his journey to what's called Beulah Land. And there he can see the celestial city in the distance. He knows he's so close. And he sees that and it was motivated him to finish the race set before him. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, I just simply echo the words of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold Him. Cry out to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and truly turn from your sin and He will give you the white robe of His righteousness. If you've been wounded by sin and you're sick of the emptiness of this world and the tinsel of this world that tarnishes so quickly, 
Even the new toys that we get quickly are dented and rusted and or break or whatever. The, the, the things of this life only bring temporal joy. We should never set our hope on these things. But to look to Him who reigns forever, who will never turn to the right or to the left, who has as, as determined with, through His covenant faithfulness to bring every one of His children home. What a wonderful joy that is no matter what we go through. This life is not all. There's a hymn that reads like this, Till God in human flesh I see, my thoughts no comfort find. The holy, just, and sacred three are terrors to my mind. But if Emmanuel's face appears, my hope, my joy begins. His name forbids my slavish fears. His grace removes my sins. Will you come and experience his free grace? Put your wallet away. Put your checkbook away. Put your credit card away. It's free grace. Simply embracing Him and trusting Him. Trusting in His finished work. Trusting that those scars that on the cross, He really did pay for all the sins of God's elect. And there's nothing that you can contribute to your salvation. Now, because of that free grace, once we're saved, we want to glorify Him and we want to serve Him. We want to give Him my life and my all, as Isaac Watts would say. Is that your desire today? May the Lord put that into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this glorious scene set before us, one that we can barely wrap our minds around. Help us to embrace it by faith. Help us to revel in the amazing picture that is there. We pray, O God, that you would indeed stir within our hearts a greater longing for our heavenly home. And we are mindful of those who are outside of Christ, Lord, that you might stir in them, that you might convict them, that you might give them no rest, that you might bring them to yourself. And we will be careful to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.